to hear your voices, uh, to hear clapping, um, and uh, yeah, just be together. I can't wait till we can all be together, feel safe in doing so, and worshiping Jesus together. And I also want to say thank you to all those who are online. Thank you for joining us in that capacity. We're so glad we have the technological means for you to connect and um, join us in this way. And we do want to make sure, those of you who are online, you're able to do so in the best way possible. And to do that, we'd like you to go to onelifeseattle.org forward slash live. We've purposely designed this place to be one where you feel connected and a part of the community. Um, and you'll feel it when you get there because there's, it's the only place you'll find a live chat line, our Bible and live prayer app, important links and resources and our note section. Um, that said, However and whenever you choose to engage with us online, we want you to know that your presence and participation is a blessing no matter what. So it's, um, it's just great to be with you all this morning. I'm excited to be taking us into week three of our Lenten sermon series we've entitled, Again and Again, A Lenten Refrain. And the meaning of this title and what we're talking about fits wonderfully with the season of Lent in the church calendar. If you remember the seasons or God with us, which we were at in Lent, and we're now in this Lent and Easter time, which is God for us. And so as we think about this season of Lent, we're reminded that again and again, suffering and brokenness is part of our lives. In our day-to-day, -day, we doubt again, we lament again, we mess up, right? Again and again, the story of Jesus on the cross is repeated, and we need to hear it, especially every time lives are taken in an unjust way, every time the powerful choose corruption and violence, every time individuals forget how to love. And if that doesn't sound current, I, I don't know what to say. Our culture is dealing with so much right now from this pandemic to war to power struggles to pastors of mega churches having significant failures to you name it people of color being discriminated against and so we feel all of this and with exasperation we want to claim and and pro proclaim gosh how long oh lord will this continue again and again. And yet in the midst of what often feels like constant chaos, if you, if you listen to the news every day, it feels constant. God offers each of us a sacred refrain, saying to us again and again, I choose you, I love you, I want to lead you into shalom, I'm with you and I'm for you. And to me, in the midst of a Lenten journey, that refrain is such a word of amen for me. Because if you remember, the word Lent literally means springtime. And this quote that we use every year says, Lent is meant to be the church's springtime, a time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. And that's our hope, right? That as we continue in this Lenten journey, we are engaging both with the realities of sin and death that's in our lives and it's all around us and in our world, but we're also remembering the faithful presence of God with us and for us again and again, reminding us that we're not alone. 
that God meets us wherever we're at to listen and remind us to hear that the Spirit is speaking to us today, even in all of this, and reminding us again and again that God shows us the way. And that's what we're talking about today, this idea of God showing us the way. So before we begin, though, let me open our time with a word of prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you for the opportunity to make space in our day to engage with you, to worship and to pray, to again and again call on our need for you in the midst of everything that's going on and and to be reminded that we're not alone, that you're speaking to us. And not only that we're not alone and that you're speaking to us, but you want to lead us. You have a way for us to go that's so much better than what everything else is saying. And so, God, today we pray you would show us the way and that you would not only help us understand it, but you'd help us move into that. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today, to get at this idea of God showing us the way, we are going to look at the text of John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, which is a pretty kind of crazy text. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. If you don't, um, you're welcome to follow along as I read it, and it'll be on the screen. Or if you're online, you can use our Bible app um, as a great tool to follow along as well. But we're going to look at John chapter 2, starting with verse 13 which says this. The Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here, exclamation point. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy the sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, the sanctuary took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. As we dive into this, it's important to know that all four Gospels have this story. But only John tells the story about Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem at the very beginning of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use this event and share it as it happens near the end of Jesus' life during his final week. In fact, it becomes basically the last straw for his opponents to create a plot to eliminate the threat of Jesus. And so with that, Jesus probably didn't do this twice, 
in his ministry. And it doesn't seem like the type of event that the temple authorities um, and religious leaders would just let slide and happen over and over again. So why would John tell this story differently than the other three Gospels? Well, as the disciples looked back and remembered Christ's ministry, they did not set out to write biographies of Jesus in the way someone today writes a biography of a famous historical figure where they would recount their lives and their significant experiences. They were not trying to write like a historical narrative as someone might do to describe a sequence of events that occurred to understand the past to the present. The writers of Matthew, the writers of Matthew Mark, and Luke, and John were writing what we call Gospels. And in their day, a gospel was a literary form that reported the good news, particularly of a victory, of a battle, or the deliverance that resulted as a result. And so as such, they were telling the story of Jesus kind of like a sermon to make a point and to elicit a response. And so John mentions how the disciples will look back after Jesus' resurrection and remember, understand, and believe. And this is made very clear near the end of the Gospel of John, where the purpose of it is revealed in John chapter 20, verse 31, where it says this, but these are written, all the things have been written, so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John remembers this event of Jesus' cleansing of the temple as foundational and essential to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus' purpose was. So he places the story early in his gospel to help readers believe. The question then is, what is it about this story that Jesus wants us and those people back then to understand and grasp? The story tells us about a time when Jesus was impassioned. And in the Greek, the story is literally written as one long sentence, which makes it read very differently than what we read it like in our current Bible. So think of it like this. Lots of commas. Jesus went into the temple, and there were people selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifice, and the people who exchanged currency were there, and he made a whip and drove the people and the animals out of the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and he said to the dove sellers, get those things out of here and stop making my father's house into a business. And when we read it like this, we can feel the feels, Right? There's something clearly going on for Jesus. Maybe Jesus had felt disappointed and frustrated by the buying and selling and money changing in the temple before this particular time. But it makes you wonder, what was it about this particular day that pushed Jesus over the edge? When Matthew, Mark, and Luke remember the story, they recall Jesus accusing people who were selling as having the temple made into a den of robbers or a hideout for crooks. Jesus seems to have discovered some abuses in the system and is upset that people who came to worship God are being cheated, which is understandable. He'd be frustrated with. But here in John, Jesus doesn't make that accusation. Instead, he's upset that they have turned his father's house into a place of business. 
And what this suggests is that Jesus is bothered by the very system itself. You see, at the time, animal sacrifice was a key to the system of worship in the temple. The Old Testament book of Leviticus outlines in great detail the various kinds of sacrifices and the occasions on which they would be offered and the ways they should be carried out. And people made these very long pilgrimages from far away, making it very impractical for them to bring all their own animals to sacrifice to the temple. And so the temple authorities Thinking about this, understanding this, contracted vendors to provide cattle, sheep, and doves for worshipers to purchase so they could make their sacrifices, which makes total sense, right? Likewise, because people came from out of town and long distances, it was common practice for money to be changed in the temple so people could buy what they needed. And in addition, the Jews understood that the use of Roman and Greek coinage was prohibited in the temple, and they would not let the money be offered or used for transactions. And the reason was because in the second commandment, it forbids the making of images. And back then, foreign coins were often stamped with images of either animals or like Caesar would be stamped on there. And so to use the kind of currency would have been blasphemy. And so the money changers would change the traveler's money into Hebrew coinage that the temple would then accept. And again, this totally makes sense. These were the systems that were in place at the time and had been in place for a very long time. The text tells us that it was nearly time for the Passover, which is one of the main feasts for Judaism so people were coming from many places all around, very far, to come to worship God. And it was their custom to meet God in the temple with a sacrifice. But Jesus seems to be upset that their customs and practices were somehow keeping people from God. You see, after living with Jesus, seeing Jesus die and meeting him raised from the dead, the disciples, looking back on the events like this, came to some conclusions about Christ's purpose. They believed that Jesus came into the world in the flesh to make God available to people in a whole new way. In other words, Jesus came to show us the way. He himself was the new temple in him that people could meet God. And so with that, what was it about the business of the Jerusalem temple that then disturbed Jesus so much that he went into and turned everything upside down? I think Jesus would say that the temple and the systems that were in place had gotten in the way of people recognizing him. Everyone was so used to the money and the animals and the sacrifices. It was, after all, the way they had always done it that they couldn't see the new thing God was doing right in their very midst. All the stuff that had become associated with worship and the temple and that life over time got in the way of them truly knowing and experiencing God. And it makes me wonder, what is it about our church systems, structures, liturgies, beliefs that Jesus may want to respond to in the same way today? 
whether that's this specific church or the church as a whole. It makes me wonder what systems and beliefs and patterns do we each have with regards to our own spiritual walk that God might want to turn over. I don't know about you, but it it feels as if things aren't working. And we've been in a really tough place for the last two years. You see, Jesus would spend the rest of his life overturning things that got in the way of people meeting God and receiving God's offer of abundant life to the world. And although John doesn't use the word, it seems apparent that Jesus was angry about the situation in the temple. And we often point to that and say it demonstrates how human Jesus was, right? That he experienced anger. But his anger also points to something divine in him. His anger reflects God's anger with the way things were, as well as God's desire and determination to change things, to make things new. And you see, for us, we often view anger as a negative emotion, something to be avoided at all costs. And so we bury it or we we gloss over it or we just straight up deny it or we'll just tell ourselves and others, we're not angry, we're sad or we're frustrated or we're disappointed or we're, we're passionate instead. But anger can be a tool that can be used to create constructive dialogue and a sense of holy discontent that moves towards change. I love how this pastor, author, and blogger, Jeff Motter, describes anger. He says, anger does not have to be just a blaze burning things down. It can cast a glow that illuminates and generates heat that draws people closer to each other. That feels different from the way we think of anger initially. You see, part of being a disciple of Jesus and following him is to allow his ways and his commitments as revealed in the Gospels to shape our commitments and our values and our way of life, not the other way around. And I think Jesus is upset because these people have gotten so caught up in the systems of the world that they're missing out on what God was doing. And I wonder how often Jesus feels that way about us. And the Gospel of John is a gospel of signs and sayings of Jesus. So if we want to know who Jesus is, why he came, what he cares about, and what needs changed, then we need to pay attention to those signs, those actions he took, and those things he said about God and about himself. And what does Jesus say over and over and over again? He says, follow me. Follow me. And as we continue reading in John, we see key moments in Jesus' life and ministry that show us the way that we are called. On one occasion, in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, Jesus approached a Samaritan woman at a well. And he talked with her. And men and women in their world were not supposed to converse so intimately in public. Jews and Samaritans deeply distrusted one another to the point of despising the other. But Jesus showed he was eager to cross boundaries 
his society had set up to welcome someone into the life of God and what God offers to empower even outsiders like this woman to take the good news to others. And so even with this example, I wonder what that might look like today. What boundaries and ways of seeing people and treating people might God say, that's not how it is. That system's not right. I'm welcoming everyone in. Or there's that time in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals a man by the pool who couldn't walk well. He healed him on the Sabbath. But the leaders were all angry because they said that the law prohibited healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus, again, shows us a different way. There's the time in John chapter 6 where Jesus fed a massive crowd of people from just a little bit of bread and a morsel of fish. And no one was willing to share but this little boy of his lunch. And with it, Jesus fed the entire group of 5,000. Jesus satisfied their hungry bodies, but he also offered his body to fulfill their deepest hunger. And he says in John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. It makes me think of our dinner church. We have a lot more than we like to recognize, and, and we find people who are in need, and, and we reach out. No questions asked. Anyone who needs food. We don't just give you food. We care about you. We know your story. We love you. Right? This is a very different way than our culture likes to say. There's that moment in John chapter 8 where Jesus was asked about a woman caught in adultery. He could have judged her harshly and condemned her just as all the religious authorities wanted him to do. And instead, what does Jesus say in John 8, 7? He says, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Convicted, her accusers all went away. Jesus restores the woman's life and dignity, invites her to go and sin no more. Again, Jesus is showing a very different way. And throughout his life and ministry, John recounts it. Jesus spoke about and demonstrated a very radical way of living about love. And everything Jesus did was to show us this way, this new system, this very different way to live. And Jesus passionately called on his disciples to love one another just as he did with acts of forgiveness, love, and service and acceptance. John 13, 15 through 17, uh, Jesus tells this to his disciples as he's washing their feet. He says, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In other words, Jesus says, just as I've loved you, you should love others. And if we read the entire Gospel of John, you see that in many ways, it's this new way of living, it's this way of love that Christ embodies. It's that that got him killed. It's God's way shown to us, embodied in Christ. And it seems foolish, even scandalous, and, com and, and, and just straight up crazy 
in comparison to the ways of our world, right? I mean, if we think about it, love, forgiveness, abundant grace, we like to say, you know, Jesus didn't live in the complicated world that we live in. Jesus didn't have to think about the pandemic that we've been through. Jesus didn't have to deal with nuclear weapons, wars like this. But that way of love took Jesus to the cross, revealing the power and wisdom of God and opening the gift of life with God as we never knew it before. And there's still people right outside there that don't know it. And what's really interesting is that in the same chapter where Jesus cleanses the temple, there's another story just before it at a wedding, a wedding in Cana. And the biblical scholars like to point out the interesting placement of these stories because one is about abundance and the other is about challenge. One's about the blessing Christ wants to give and the other's about the change he wants to see. One's about joy and the other is about anger. And so in Jesus, we meet the exact representation of God, and with it, we see what God sees. We see the blessing, abundance, and joy, the beauty in which we are created, and we see that we are beloved by God, which is a huge amen. But let us not forget that we also see how broken and in need of God we are, and how again and again, we participate in systems that deny ourselves and others the abundant life God wants for each of us and for all humanity. We see in Jesus the challenge and the change needed. We see the divine anger that doesn't want to let us turn away from the one who truly is the way, the truth, and the life that we have sung about today. At this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come back, and they're going to play instrumentally for a bit to allow us space to ponder what we've heard. And I, and I want to give us two questions to reflect upon, and these are the same questions we brought up earlier. And I really want us to take into consideration our current story, our current context, what's going on right in our stories and around us, but in our greater culture and world as well. And so I would love to hear from you. Um, those of you who are here, there's a connection card on your seat. You might just be sitting on it. Use that. Those of you who are online, you'll see a link in the online platform. Um, I would love to hear from you. But question number one is this. What systems, what church systems, structures, liturgies, beliefs, you name it, do you think Jesus might want to turn over? And why do you think they're distracting you and or others from connecting with God? I want you to be honest, not just about one life, but about the church in general. What are the things that you think are systems in place of the church right now that are getting in the way of people connecting with God right now? Because there's one thing for sure in this story. If there's something getting in the way of people connecting with God, Jesus wants to change that. Number two, where do you feel stuck spiritually? And what systems, beliefs, patterns, whatever, do you have with regards to your own spiritual walk that God might want to turn over in order to show you a different way to connect with God? I don't know about you. Um, the pandemic 
has, uh, I don't know what the word is. I'm going to say sapped my motivation. Being stuck at home for so long, get, trying to get motivated, dealing with the psychological fears that we've had to deal with at times. Um, they make you feel stuck. And spiritually, we can feel that way as well. Especially those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we may have gotten routines and stuff, none of which were bad in, in the basis of them. Again, the systems that were in place in the temple at this time, there was nothing wrong with them. They weren't bad. Their intentions weren't bad. But at some point, the systems need to change because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't helping people connect with God. And we do that with ourselves. So what's getting in the way of us growing as disciples? And the reason why I want to do this is because I firmly believe that this pandemic and the overall current state of our world has been a way to highlight how many of the structures and systems and the ways we've understood and done church and understood what it means to be disciples of Jesus needs to change. Amen. Amen. I agree. I, I love this quote. Lent is meant to be the church's springtime, a time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. I think God is inviting us into something new, that God is wanting to turn the tables and clean house, if you will, both as a church, but specifically of each of us as disciples. And I'm including myself on this. I believe God wants to break us out of our routines and our systems and our patterns and our stuckness that this pandemic has only highlighted and further fostered. And God is again and again showing us the way in Jesus, this way of love. And I believe this way of love is not just outward, it's showing love to ourselves in Jesus. And I think we need to do the hard work of asking some questions and allowing Jesus to actually bring the whip, actually come in and turn the tables. And so again and again, may we know that God meets us in Christ just as we are wherever we are. And again and again, may we listen and hear God speaking to us through scriptures, through prayer, through conversation, in action. And again and again, may we be the repentant, empowered people who follow and embody the way of Christ. Amen? So feel free to use this space to pray, to confess, to own, to give thanks, whatever you feel called to in this time. Um, I want you to know that the prayer team is available both here in-house and online. If you have prayer online, you just click the request prayer button on the left, and they would love to pray for you. Marty and Heather will be here to pray for you as well if you'd like prayer. Um, but I really want to make sure you get some space to reflect on these connection card questions. So as the band plays, um, take some time to reflect. I would love to hear your thoughts, and I hope you will be honest because um, I, I think this Lenten journey has some new things for us, and um, that means it's hard, um, but it means it's good. I'm going to close this with prayer, and we'll um, take some time to reflect and sing one last song of response. Father, Son, Spirit, we come to you this Lenten morning, and we again remember our need for you. 
Lent is a reminder that you're for us and that we can't do this on our own. And especially when we feel stuck, we cry out again and again, God, we need you. And this Lenten season, again, God, in this wilderness journey, in this, in this time in which we feel kind of in the depths of sin and winter and darkness, we thank you that you continue to speak to us, that we can hear you, Holy Spirit, that we're not alone. And again and again, God, as we, we wrestle with the stuff that's going on in this world, things that are straight up against all that you stand for, we thank you that you show us the way. And God, we pray that you would use us as your disciples to be embodied men and women who bring the things that you are about to life in the day-to-day that the transformation that is happening below the ground that is symbolized in Lent, that you would bring about an empowered people that would emerge as we we move towards Easter. God, help us build our life on you and not the systems and the ways of the world, even if that takes us to places that are hard, just like it took you. So give us strength and empower us, help us hear from you, and help us respond to you as we follow you in your way. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.